I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Today's podcast is crackling with energy. When I listened back to the recording, it was unmistakable. The reason is obvious. The subject matter we're discussing is Gallagher's imminent takeover of Willis Ree. This is the biggest thing to happen in reinsurance broking since Aon bought Benfield back in 2008. And here I spend some time with an ebullient pair of senior executives, clearly ecstatic about how the deal is going to transform the Gallagher Group and fulfil its long-held ambition to build a genuinely global reinsurance broker. Talking to Gallagher Europe, Middle East and Asia CEO Simon Matson and Tom Wakefield, the CEO of Gallagher Re, was a lot of fun. In the next half hour or so, you will get a good idea of how Gallagher plans to welcome, integrate and invest in the newly formed business in the coming years. We also talk in depth about the dynamics of the global reinsurance market itself, both in the short term, looking at the upcoming renewal season, and strategically in the very long term. The first of the two to speak is Simon Matson. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA claim service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. Simon and Tom, thanks so much for taking some time to speak to the Voice of Insurance. It's really great to be here in your offices here in the middle of London. Congratulations, first of all, on a hell of a deal. Buying Willis Ree, in my experience as a journalist covering the reinsurance markets, Everyone says, well, Willis Ree, it's an absolute gem of a business. It's a great business. So how did you manage to convince Willis Towers Watson to sell it to you? Well, it's been quite a journey to get to this point. And I think these are guys who've been sold twice already, effectively. Once to Aon, didn't work. You know, once through Aon to us, didn't work. So I really empathise for what they've been through. Now, during the process, I think they were exposed to us at Gallagher and the Gallagher culture. And it's something that really resonated with them, particularly a broker run by brokers, you know, and the Gallagher family all come from that background. And it landed very well with them. So I think we won the hearts and minds and it kind of went from there. So if you've got a big plan, I mean, you've already done the job of integrating Capsicum, but this is on a completely different scale. It's almost like a reverse takeover, I would say. This is an entity that's got a lot of its own traditions and its own way of doing things. And it's bigger than you on the reinsurance side by a really long way. So what's the plan? 
I mean, again, a good question. I mean, it is a Gallagher acquisition, but by scale, you know, they're a big entity and a great business. I mean, a really good business, some really good people in there. So, you know, it's a very well-structured plan, as you would imagine. We've got a three-year integration plan, which is well underway in terms of the planning of that. One of the things really good about it is not actually a synergy play. You know, it's not us adding one and one to kind of reduce cost and strip it out. It's very complementary business. There's minimal overlap. So this is really a creative deal in every sense. So certainly that was something that was really apparent in the way that Gallagher's messaging of the deal when it was a remedy sale, all the Aon messaging was all about how the synergies are still intact. And Pat Gallagher's message was very much, yeah, this isn't about that. This is about we're just acquiring a fantastic group of people and also we have a plan to invest in those people. This has been a really unsettled business, unsurprisingly, given what's been happening in the last two or three years. So how are you going to settle all these people down so that you'll stem the flow of any kind of flight that there might have been by people who've been really unsettled in the last two years? Listen, we're not complacent to the people aspects, and I think that's what Gallagher's is really good at. The people and the culture is something that runs through the core of Gallagher globally, actually. So the incoming team, I think, feel this is the right landing pad for them. In many senses, they made it happen. Everyone's got choice, but Gallagher represents a great landing pad for them in so much as it's underdeveloped. You know, Capscom Re and into Gallagher Re was proof of concept, and we were building upon that heavily with the acquisition of Tom and other significant talent to add to the talent we already had. I think honouring the promises we've made people, being alive to the fact it's a people business, is something customers actually made happen ultimately with the kind of appeals to the regulators. So everyone's there to look after their customers. And if you look after customers, look after our people. I think that's the kind of key ingredients. You mentioned about Gallagher culture. Obviously, it is strong and it's written down. You know, you've got the Gallagher way with all these principles written down. So what is it for them on their first day induction? Do they just get a copy of the Gallagher way and say, right, get on with that? Or are you going to try and do something a bit different, take a lot of the culture that they've already got and try and make something that's a sort of third way? Listen, I think the Gallagher culture is the overriding one we want to hang on to. But recognising there's nuances in different aspects of different businesses and internationally, the cultural kind of nuances. But it's a really good team. They've got a strong culture. Actually, they've got a culture that held it together when all the sharks were swimming around, including us trying to pick up their people. And I think that's admirable what they've achieved in that regard. And I can speak from personal experience that the culture at Gallagher is very welcoming. I'm a relatively new person as, as part of that, and it's been an incredibly empowering experience to join the Gallagher culture. And when we think about what Willis Re brings us, that the global distribution is incredible. And you know, a lot of the existing Gallagher Re team have built really nice niche products in areas of unmet demand. And what we're going to do now is empower those people to push out through what is the current Willis Re network? So it really does match up well from both sides. This is a massive landmark investment, a bit of MA. Do you think that would be the end of it? Or do you think there's scope even for more? Because obviously, even in the grand scheme of things, it's still the third biggest reinsurance broker and quite a long way from the second. You can get hung up about size. It's not our ambition to be number one, our ambition is to be the best. And I think we've got an excellent team sheet. The all-stars will be under our roof and we will add to that. You know, we'll add talent. Over time, they've lost some people and I think, you know, we've got some strong succession planning we want to build out. And North America is obviously, you know, one of the big prizes. We can see massive opportunity in certain sectors, in certain territories. And I know that the Willis Reef folks can as well. And we're looking forward to working together to execute. Willis has Watson's very large global broking group. Gallagher's a very, very large 
global broking group, perhaps not as global. How important do you think it is for reinsurance brokers with ambitions to be generally global in scale to be part of a big global insurance group? I think it's really important, actually. And I think you've got to look at it constantly with a customer lens. Only last week, Tom and I were with a customer or market, and they like to view it as a holistic relationship. They don't want to be beaten over the head. You know, we have a huge inwards portfolio with you. You know, therefore, we're entitled to an outwards portfolio. That's not how it works, and that's not certainly how we're going to talk to customers or prospective customers. It's about delivering a value to them and understanding the nature of what they want to underwrite all the way to reinsuring out or retro, I think is an advantage for them and for us. You've also got the logistical side of it as well, office locations, licenses, things that are vital to be able to trade reinsurance and insurance all around the globe. And I think that's really, really important when we think about the growing pains of trying to build out reinsurance organically. That's clearly been something that Gallagher Reed did extremely well in London and certain pockets around the world, but there's been a bit of a lack of distribution into some of those other areas. And Gallagher on the insurance side has that capability, is increasing that capability. And I think the combination of the three things will plug in nicely together. We're all old enough to remember Benfields being perhaps the last very large independent reinsurance broker that didn't have any insurance operations until perhaps right at the end when it was had corporate specialty. Once Willisbury becomes a Gallagher company, how do you think all the dynamics are going to change? in terms of it not being a Willis Towers Watson company anymore? I think, actually, what we understand from the incoming team is that particularly appeals to them is the flat nature of navigating your way around Gallagher. The fact that, as I said earlier, we are a broker run by brokers. And I think the bit that particularly resonated well with them was ongoing commitment to invest. Invest in data, technology, and people. And I've been around Gallagher's now for nearly 14 years. And it's that ability to throw seeds out forwards for future crops to grow that really marks Gallagher out in a different way. And just want to reiterate that in this day and age, what is that relationship between inwards and outwards? And you say, obviously, there's no sense of entitlement. And of course, you know, we're all old enough to have been around at Spitzer when we know that there was that legal divide between what is permissible and what is not permissible. But what is the relationship today? between inwards and outwards, and how will that dynamic change with Willis Reed being your insurance arm and swapping in Gallagher from WTW? I mean, what we're hearing from customers, Mark, is that they want to have a conversation at the top table about how their insurance and reinsurance business works. And I think that's the thing that we would take away from this. This is something that's strategically important to them, to understand how the reinsurance market's going to feed into the insurance market, what the impact of exclusionary language is going to be on their original portfolios, how they're thinking about rate change and how that will move through into the reinsurance market. So you alluded to Spitzer, but that was around data and exchange of information across Chinese walls. What we're hearing from customers is they just want to see corporate alignment around the way they're doing their business, and we're committed to giving that to them. And so Willis is really bringing you something you didn't have before. Is that the right way of looking at it? So now you can be completely universal. You can do anything that Aon and Guy Carpenter can do, for example. Yeah, I think the really positive bit of Gallagher Re and the history with Capsicum is it really focused on areas where they saw opportunity and they went and executed on that and they did it extremely well. What Willis Re does is it gives us that conversation on any line of business, in any territory, at any time. And so it really does move us into that mainstream global role away from a more regional, class-specific role. 
And also understanding for direct customers equally what's happening in the reinsurance market and how we can bring forward capital to them for better solutions for the end user customer. Anything that we can do to short circuit that or have a better informed opinion on that is massively attractive to primary user customers. In talking about investment in platforms, in people particularly, but also in technology, I suppose one of the great rationales for Willis and Towers Watson coming together originally to produce WTW was some of um, Towers Watson's technology and certainly at that high end, the capital modelling technology that platform that Towers Watson brought was certainly at the time of that merger was certainly championed by Willis Re executives to say, we've got something we didn't have before, we can bring this to our clients and it's bringing a fantastic new offering to them. So how imperative is it for you to be investing in something similar or these days, obviously, the great thing about technology is you can always leap ahead. And I saw that you've had some announcements recently, but I used to sort of tell me what that strategy is. I presume that's imperative because at some point your license to use that Towers Watson software may drop off at some point. I mean, this is one of the things I'm most excited about. Um, I was listening to one of your podcasts a couple of weeks ago with James Slaughter and Sylvie Wampler-Sinclair, and they were talking about legacy systems and the cost of updating legacy systems. And so What's great for us is we have a three-year transitional services agreement with Willis to give them long-term continuity to their customers. At the same time, we can build a relatively legacy-free set of infrastructure to support those customers, but also support existing Gallagher customers and new customers that transition towards us. So we're able to enter this with a sort of, you know, without all that legacy sitting in play, and we can really move forward using the new technology that's available to us and some of the things we're already launching look at 80% increase in efficiency, for example, of model vendor comparisons. And I suppose from a management perspective, you've got that clock ticking. Everyone knows that there's no excuse. It has to be ready for when the old one switches off. Absolutely. It's certainly in the back of your mind. There's a sort of thing about tech projects that sometimes just seem to go on forever, don't they? But that's really, really good. When you get your new colleagues and you're all integrated and you've worked out who's doing what, what's going to be the biggest strategy, though? You're just going to be the third largest reinsurance broker in the world and with an opportunity, obviously, to gain market share on those top two, or you can do something different. I think we've got a list of what customers want. And again, if you understand what the customer wants or you listen to your customer rather than force feed what you've got in your larder to them, and that's got to be the right direction of travel. Our business has been very successful, Touchwood, to date, so that, you know, there's plenty of seeding room for us to grow. agree with that, absolutely. And when we look at the existing Gallagher business and some of the success that we've had in classes like mortgage and cyber and some of the other motor and other areas, that's been under a relatively small geographical platform. So when we think about the opportunity to bridge the protection gap, service unmet demand, it's huge globally outside of what's being done today by all the brokers. And I think it's fair to say, look, we're in this fortuitous position because ultimately regulators and clients and markets objected to the initial transaction, which meant they wanted more choice. So Gallagher's is going to be that choice. If we look at things like communicable disease, there's a huge number of carriers today trying to work out what to do with communicable disease. And the reinsurance market can be really helpful with that and bring to bear some of the loss mitigation stuff as well as the product development stuff. And I think there's a huge role for reinsurance brokers generally to play in that. And we're very excited to be a part of it. So just having Willis Reed there just gives you a ticket to a bigger game was perhaps would that have been something you'd say as Gallagher capsicum would that have been something you thought well this is too big for us to look at 
but now we've got Willis Re, we've got those resources, we can invest in some very... I think Gallagher Re, Capscom Re was quite product-specific, boutique and we were building that out to be more of a kind of holistic offering, which Tom was well underway, and certainly had big plans for it. Willis Re just delivers that. From a Gallagher perspective, to have a more balanced leg of the chair in reinsurance is good business practice. And I think, as Tom said earlier, there's no customer that we can't service in any aspect of their business that they would wish us to. Let's talk about the market. Obviously, coming up to renewals, we would have been in Monte Carlo and all the other places. That's still not happening yet, but it's time to talk about it. Talking to reinsurance people of the last year, their observation was that it's been more of this harder market, hard market, whatever you want to call it, market adjustment has been more driven by insurance rather than reinsurance. And reinsurers have been quite happy to tag along for the ride, particularly on proportional relationships where they haven't had to do anything much. Is that fair to describe reinsurers as being benign, a nice benign influence? I'm not sure that's entirely fair. Um, I think that it's definitely the case that insurance require more rating correction than reinsurance has, generally speaking. So therefore, that perception may well be what's happened with the more rapid correction of rating in the insurance space. But generally speaking, it would be churlish to ignore recent lots activity in the reinsurance market. There's certainly plenty to think about, particularly around secondary perils and the impact of environmental change. It's one of those things where everyone's watching very carefully. I think the new entrants you've seen coming in have not gone after the business aggressively, and that's probably an indication that the rate isn't there to really drive the market down. I certainly think that the rating environment we're going into will be very client-specific. It will be very focused on individual loss activity. Yes, there's a lot of capital in the market, but there are also a lot of losses. And so it's an interesting dynamic at the moment as we move forward into the renewal. It's a bit of a status quo. Would you say it's a sort of going to be a score draw or something? I think it's going to be very client-specific. I think <laughs> it's really going to come down to the individual loss record, the trading environment, the impact of COVID losses, et cetera, et cetera. Because there's a lot to stack up as well between now and then, not least things like IDA and where those losses fall and if there are people who've got disproportionate losses and all the other things that might, may or may not happen. It's absolutely you were saying about the class of 2020, you're saying, just to clarify, they haven't really made much of an impact. Is that because they've kept their powder dry, would you say? Yeah, when we say they haven't made an impact, they've made an impact for their own colleagues, their shareholders. They've written plenty of business, but they've largely done it in a very disciplined, a lot of it's following line type capacity. And, and I think that you know, these are smart people. They're good at what they do. I just don't think they see the market being there to attack it. They're not destabilising the market. They're not quoting alternative lead pricing or that kind of thing. They're just there to fill an order at market prices. Without doubt, they would come in and offer capacity at lead terms if requested to do so. But we're not seeing them driving the market down when it comes to building the business. And it sounds like you're not asking them to do that then as brokers. I think as brokers, we'll ask them to do whatever it takes to differentiate our clients. But I think there are a huge number of different moving parts in the market dynamics at the moment. And it's just not been something those entities have been willing to entertain at this stage. So if you've wanted to attack a client, you haven't been able to use one of these new vehicles to be your attack vehicle to say, right, let's come in with 20% off. Well, I think the other thing <laughs> to consider here is the size and scale of the other reinsurers that are offering the capacity behind it. And people are very conscious of their long-term reinsurer relationships, where they sit in the market, how they sit geographically, you know, the line sizes that are required on some of these big reinsurance programs are vast. And so as much as there has been new capacity coming in, it's not been anything like the capacity that already sits in the market today. 
we had Conduit on the programme with Neil Eckert and Trevor Garvey, and he said, no, reinsurance is a business. You do take your place, and you sit and take your place. He was sort of saying he wasn't there to rock the boat. So fair enough. What about COVID? Obviously, this time last year, we had all said, oh, come on, it's just far too early. Don't ask me about COVID, for goodness sake. What about now? Now that things are coming a bit more into view, obviously in the UK, we've had Supreme Court rulings on test cases, and there's a bit more happening. So what do you think the likelihood of there being disputes emerging? I mean, it's a really good question. I was on a panel a few weeks ago talking about this, and I think reinsurers were at pains to point out on that panel that they will pay all claims that they believe are legitimately presented in the appropriate fashion. We've got this event definition issue, both in terms of the way in which reinsurance policies were put in place previously, but also even in terms of ongoing, giving the right type of coverage in the right way for customers. You know, is pandemic a sort of attritional class or is it a cat class? There's some very profound questions that people are still trying to, to answer. Whether there will be disputes or not will come down to presentation of the claim, the relationship with the reinsurer, the way in which it was brokered in the first place. And ultimately, each individual situation will, will now need to play out. But it's not the end of the story. I mean, there's still event cancellations going on globally. I think we forget because we're in the UK and things are currently looking up. We sort of think that everything's going to be like that. But actually, in other countries, in other territories, you know, this is not the end of the story. Then we know obviously everything can change here on the sixpence anyway. From one week to the next, things change. So you're just saying there is no real clarity. You can't say everything's going to be hunky-dory from now on. We just don't know. What you're saying is it's still too early. I think what's hunky-dory is that the balance sheets of reinsurers have withstood the loss, of insurers have withstood the loss. The market seems in a good place. The market is in a position where they're starting to think about how to give cover for this type of exposure going forward. So there's lots of positives from it. But you know, we've also got 100 billion estimated as a sort of loss for the industry. Only 50 billion has currently even been realised. And it's, of course, reinsurance sitting in the tail is going to take the, the chunk or may take a chunk of that extra 50 billion that hasn't yet come through. So it's very hard to sit here and say, you know, there's a catch all type situation, Mark, in terms of where this is going to go, particularly as the original wordings on reinsurance contracts have varied so much, depending on the class of business and the, and the nature of the way that the client wished to define event in the first place. So, yeah, there's just too much IBNR without any actual action not even been claimed yet. Is that what you said? Or IBNER. Yeah. Actually, let's talk about that because it's really interesting you're saying that it seems that you were already talking about covering pandemic-related. So has there been heightened interest clearly from the reinsurance buying public in getting some sort of cover out there? And then what sort of conversations have you been having? Obviously, earlier on in the pandemic, we were talking about public-private partnerships and other things. Where's your thinking and where might the capacity come from to do something meaningful? Because obviously... The one thing we did learn is that we didn't realise quite what a systemic risk pandemic was because we didn't know that governments were going to lock down whole countries and whole economies. I'll happily go first, Pastor Simon. Maybe Would it just be a really, and he's going to be talking about really small sort of sticking plasters and tiny little sublimits and you think it might make a small difference to someone somewhere but not going to change yeah. the world? The big question is, do you sit and wait for the governments to step up and come to you or do you as an industry come forward and say, this is what we can offer, this is how we're prepared to offer it and then we need some sort of government support to be able to deal with the back end on a sort of stop-loss basis? And to me, that would be what I would love to see the industry do. At Gallagher, we've formed a pandemic working group. We've taken a lot of the learnings that we've had from cyber and ransomware and applied it to our expertise in 
communicable disease through the event cancellation portfolio that we have. And we think that there's a lot of similarities between the way in which we're thinking about pandemic across a number of these different lines. And so ultimately, as an industry, wouldn't it be great to be able to step forward and say, this is what we're going to offer. This is how we're going to offer it, but we're going to need some help. And I think the reality is we are going to need some help because when you look at the numbers, we haven't got the capital to carry it on our own. And there's been a bit of that going on with the LMA through the UK event cancellation, the government offering something, Lloyd stepping in and offering to help with pricing, et cetera. And I think both parties can learn a lot from each other there. On the insurance side and the reinsurance side, we have the ability to support with rate setting as well as public awareness from the government side and obviously keeping cost at a level where people can actually go and buy this stuff. And that's a real key because otherwise people will just constantly rely on the government. If we have a chance of selling insurance, it has to be something that can be funded. And we've got the actual claims paying infrastructure that already exists. We have clients and we can send them money. And the yeah. government actually, the early days in the pandemic, it was fairly obvious that they didn't really have that infrastructure. They, they couldn't pay, wouldn't know how to pay. So a bit of everything. Do you think it was something that we will be able to do? Like we've been able to sort this out with terrorism, with flood, with many other perils that you think it could be added to that list of things where industry and government work together and we get something that's meaningful or something that's meaningful in most cases. Yeah, and we, we already have clients coming to us and saying we have a certain amount of defined aggregate to offer in this space. We'd like to work with you to do it. We'd like to talk about reinsurance arrangements that are available. And that's all being worked through pretty rapidly at the moment. And it's small. It's not going to solve the global pandemic issue. But I do think it's one of those things where you have to start somewhere. I think there has to be a uniform product offering and there has to be some sort of hybrid solution at the end of it. We've got to see how COVID ultimately plays out, which is still happening around us before we can get to that position. But there's got to be an answer there. You know, there is an unmet customer desire. But currently it's a small aggregate. So say to customers, well, come and get it first because it'll be gone soon. You know, Come and get it while it's still there. I think it's the dialogue insurers are having through brokers into their original customers who are trying to solve for very specific issues right now as we're coming out of the pandemic. And I think that's how you start. You solve for specific issues and then you, you start to broaden it out. You engage, as Simon says, in a hybrid solution with governments around the world. But it's just nice to be part of something we're moving forward on, as you said earlier, rather than spending our whole time worrying about the, the past. Looking really long way forward, I was having this conversation it was probably David Howden was the first one to really talk about it about a year and a half ago. We were looking at stockbroking. We still spend, you know, it used to be £15 or whatever it was per transaction. And then the internet happened and it went down to sort of three or four. And now you're in an age where there's Robin Hood and, and there is no fees. How long do you think reinsurance broking 10 points can survive in a world like that where perhaps everything is eventually tending towards zero? And how do you think your business models going to change over the rest of our lifetimes? <laughs> That's such a loaded question. <laughs> uh, I think it depends on the value of the intermediary, doesn't it? Ultimately, yes, there has to be frictional cost that we can strive to reduce and extrapolate out of the equation. It has to be. But as long as you're bringing some sort of advocacy and client advice, that's got to be something worth paying for. It's just how much is that value? Do you think everyone will go to fees eventually? when you literally can't justify any, because there is no friction, because everything's digital, that there are no frictional costs other than the sunk costs into your IT infrastructure. You know, will it just be 100% fee at some point? Well, listen, I, I think there's a lot of... Uh, is it all net brokerage? I think there's a lot of legacy built into the current arrangements. So I don't know. 
Truthfully, I don't know. I think from our perspective, it's the client that ultimately decides it. We get paid on the transaction, but what we do with customers lasts 365 days a year. So it really comes down to the, the level of value that clients see in what we're doing. And it's one of the reasons why we're very happy to embrace some of the technology developments, bringing efficiencies to the business, because I think that frees up people to do more value add for the client throughout the year. So you know, when we're thinking about whether we use third parties, develop proprietary technology ourselves, we're very much thinking about the value add for the customer. And we're not overly concerned about outsourcing something to a third party if we think that they're going to be better at it than us, because ultimately that just brings a more rounded service to the client. And equally, commission's only one small element of the overall transaction side. So we don't all have to suddenly reinvent spreadsheets. We can just go and get a Microsoft license like everyone else. And the fact that Aon and Guy Carpenter all use Microsoft Excel is not a problem, is it? Because it does what it says on the tin. In that sense, over my career, there's been a huge graveyard of different people who've tried to digitize the placement of insurance and reinsurance. It seems now that having gone through this insurtech revolution, we've got some fresh thinking around that. And there's some players out there that seem to have an interesting model that they might want to do it for free, for example. And I don't know how much you'd have to spend, you've been spending on your own placement. I wonder if that appeals to you, i.e. to find someone who's going to do it better than you can, because of course, they'll be always updating this software. It's the only thing that they do. And they just want you and everyone else and your competitors to use it. Is that something you think is a moment that will be the watershed moment to properly digitize reinsurance, rather than having all these, everyone having their own proprietary system and thinking, actually, why do we need that? It's a great question. I mean, I think there's a lot of vested interests in the current arrangements. Um, yeah, well, I suppose the way that larger insurance and reinsurance brokers looked at technology, they thought this is a really good way of raising the barrier to entry for all the smaller ones. You know, mm. it almost used to be, well, I can afford to spend 100 million on this thing. And I know all these little tiddly wholesale brokers in EC3 can't afford it. Therefore, I love it because mm. I want to create this great walled garden that no one else can get into. So I'm getting my own opinion here, but I think that's clearly one of the things that stops the digital revolution happening faster within insurance. We don't have any aversion to using third parties for something that we don't consider to be proprietarily adding value to customers. I think for us, it's all about working out what is the stuff that really changes the dial for customers that we want to own and develop and be our own versus what is something that can be taken to market through a third party, which gives a more stable long-term platform for the market. We're actually trialing one of the people you alluded to earlier in terms of trying to work out, is that the right solution for us going forward? And it may well be. We don't have a particular aversion to using third parties for, for things that we believe are transactional. And in the future, that added value you talk about, is it really going to lie in being able to analyze that client data and help add value to them to say, did you know you've got a problem? or find, point out problems that they're not necessarily aware of, for example, using your experience, or redesigning their program and say, well, if you do it this way, it's going to be much more efficient. Personally, I think it's a combination of the both. I mean, most customers understand where their problems are. They want you to find them the solution. I think uh, better insight into data has to be at the core of what we're going to do. Yeah. But to be clear, I'm not sure e-trading is necessarily the same thing. Yeah. You know, e-trading is how do we execute a transaction efficiently and electronically through the best possible portal to do it. Building proprietary insights for clients is around aggregation of data, using Gallagher's insurance portfolio to make pricing curves, et cetera, et cetera, and making sure that we have appropriate connectivity within the business to add value to clients. And a common trading platform. 
PPL, for instance, you know, that worked because everyone bought into it and it really worked because of COVID. And thank goodness it was there when we were all sent home, you know, otherwise it'd be possibly quite a different outcome. And the greatest barrier to change is normal people. Yeah. When I was a reinsurance broker, I dreaded this time of year because it was this phony war when you knew all the submissions were going to come in. And of course, they'd come in. No two submissions are ever the same. They're completely different, different formats. Of course, none of it was even digital. It was literally, back in my day, it was faxes of paper, 50 pages of this and that and the other. And you're thinking, how does this even work? And these net or gross or whatever. You didn't have a huge amount of information. These days, we get to the point where that data is coming in in more standardized formats that you can manipulate and really look at and compare like with like. Yes and no, I suppose, is the answer to that. I mean, there are some standard cat modeling formats, for example, where data comes in on a pretty consistent basis. The beauty of what's available technology-wise today is that we don't have to force customers into a particular format in a particular way because the technology is there to actually take that out and then build it within our systems and then play it back to them in a way which supports how they want to think about the risk, their view on risk, the adjustments they're making to the models, etc. So... As much as some things are more standard today, there's also a lack of a need for it, which means clients can be individual and they can build their systems how they want to build them. And then we can convert them using the technology that we have available to ourselves. Another thing that's been happening is live auction style pricing platforms appearing. And obviously we've seen algorithmic underwriting. I'd like to ask you about that as well. But how much do you think some of those platforms might, do you think they're going to succeed and what sort of market share might they end up with? Out of a placement, do you think it would be appropriate to allocate a certain 20% of it? We should put it on this live thing and see what happens. And then the rest will do it in a more traditional way. So this may be a slightly controversial answer, but I do think there is a place for them. I think that there are certain commodity type products that really should be auctioned. I think the real challenge that you've got at the moment is you've got brokers wanting to retain the information, the clients wanting to retain the information, and then the auction sites coming in and saying, well, we can build all this for you, but you know, you're not going to know how close to the price this client got. And one of the challenges with that is our clients have lots of different products with lots of different brokers all over the world. And they may want to use auction capability for one or two small subsets of that. And of course, when they don't understand exactly how close a reinsurer was to hitting the strike price or you know, how that reinsurer feels about what they achieved, it makes it very difficult to manage their wider relationship with the same carriers across other lines of business. So I think there is definitely a place for auction capability, but not in a way where it's a black box and you don't understand what the outcomes are that come out of it. So you're saying it's part about that relationship. You know when you've beaten up a reinsurer and you've kind of really got something out of them that they're unhappy with because they tell you all the time and they never cease reminding you that you beat them up last week on this horrible renewal. It's <laughs> about 20% lower than what they really wanted. That kind of thing. So is you saying that sometimes an algorithm can't really replace that because it won't build that relationship? Yeah, how does the client or the broker representing the client manage their overall corporate relationship with the reinsurer where they're not entirely sure how close the reinsurer got to writing it or whether they're delighted by the outcome they got or not? And that data needs to be shared and understood. So that's the value of the broker, knowing that they would have written it for half the price sometimes. We've got to make sure <laughs> the next year they do. Absolutely. Well, I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. It's obviously really exciting times for you, a huge amount of preparation going on and upheaval i would have thought you've just got to find office space and it infrastructure and presumably they can't all just bring their old willis laptops with them you have to give them all new ones <laughs> so i really appreciate you taking the time and i wish you all the best and congratulations on doing this deal because i think it's a it is an epoch defining 
moment in reinsurance broking, certainly um, in, in my lifetime since the Benfield deal, let's say, it's the biggest thing that's happened in reinsurance broking. So I really congratulate you and I hope we'll meet together soon to catch up once that integration is done and you can speak more clearly about what the new strategy is. That'd be great. And thanks for having us. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. Thank you.